Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Change in the Climate podcast. Of course, as you know, this show is brought to you by Climate Change Realty, the only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its commissions to nonprofits dedicated to fighting climate change. If you are looking to create climate action on your next real estate transaction, all you have to do is visit ccrealty.org, and we will find you an agent in your area who's willing to offer 50% of their commissions to help save the planet. Now let's dive into the podcast. Brian. Delightful to meet you, man. Thanks so much for taking some time to come on the show. Oh, greetings, Ethan. It's great to meet you as well. Yeah, great to be talking to you from the Sunshine Coast in Australia. I have a, we were just talking before the podcast. I have a soft spot for that, that area. I did a beautiful hike there. God, four years ago now. Um, and, you know, we always like to get this show started with some background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the current moment. Oh, totally. Well, you know, we've got a qu- one and a quarter meters of rain over just in the last <laughs> quarter You know, here in Australia. It's like... It's it, literally, I had an eight inch earthworm show up in my bathroom the other day because, you know, it was getting too soaked in the ground. And so earthworm came in under the door and, you know, was cruising around looking for a, a dry enough place to hang out and breathe. So yeah. <laughs> that was a big deal. And um, yeah, I think it's relating. This just showcase how much uh, the ocean is the climate. In other words, uh, the La Nina that we're having right now, super strong La Nina puts a big warm pool of warm water in the Western Pacific. And uh, literally from Australia to Japan, it's raining. It's been raining cats and dogs this season. Wow. No kidding. And, you know, I, I just saw the news report uh, in California, huge droughts, uh, you know, in California, and this is just getting worse. So that's La Nina cycle. And, um, you know, El Nino sometimes will take it the other way for parts of the Eastern Pacific. But this just underscores to what extent, you know, so much of the climate, the majority of the climate is determined by the ocean. Yeah, well, I mean, you'd think that the thing that's like the biggest, I don't want to say, uh, the biggest matter in the whole planet, the 76% of the planet covered by ocean, you'd think that might have a, an effect on how things work, you know? Just a little effect. Why didn't they call it planet ocean? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, life life started in the ocean too. But uh, cool. So Brian, how did you how did you get to be living in Australia right now doing the work that you're doing? What's your origin story? Well, my origin story starts a little earlier, and that is I was actually born uh, into an oceanographic community in San Diego, uh, and my dad was getting his PhD at Scripps in oceanography. And the year I was born, his office mate started measuring carbon dioxide on the side of Mauna Loa, and that was Dave Keeling. So they, I, you know, kind of, uh, you know, little did I know that that the group that my father was working in, you know, he was working on basically measuring that carbon dioxide by 1965. Um, the head of that group, Roger Revelle, uh, reported to then standing president Lyndon Johnson on greenhouse gases, their increase, and how that would have a transformative effect on civilization. And that was literally more than half a century ago. Wow. And here we are now. It starts way back. So fast forward, um, my father taught me to love boogie boarding and surfing, to go snorkeling and free diving. Uh, he could spend two minutes plus underwater and gave me a love for the ocean that persists to this day. And I'll tell you, when you fall in love with the ocean or charismatic megafauna or charismatic mega ecosystems like the kelp forest, um, that's when change really happens. That's when change starts. And that's led us to uh, embark upon marine permaculture seaforestation across the Pacific Ocean with our flagship research and development center in the Philippines. And with COVID and all the rest, we had to retreat to um, I, I had to retreat to Singapore. Uh, the uh, younger portions of our team are continuing to work in the Philippines, and we've scaled by an order of magnitude this year. 
uh, building a tenth of a hectare. So we're super thrilled about that. Um, we've we're here in Australia, where um, Australia has invested six hundred million dollars as a public-private partnership to build a billion-dollar seaweed industry over the next dozen years. So it's a huge opportunity. This is an order of magnitude larger than the investments that have gone into uh, seaweed uh, sea forestation in the United States, and it presents a huge opportunity. That said, we're doing a crowdfunder right now at climatefoundation.org to actually bring and repatriate this technology back to the States and develop uh, America's first uh, marine permaculture pilot, which we hope to do right off the West Coast as early as next year if we get enough support from our crowdfunders. God, isn't it crazy that that would be the the first one? Like the most, like you're saying, oceans, like the most essential ecosystem. It's where all life started and we're, we're just starting to grow, to try to grow things and foster life there. I guess we kind of, there's the idea of like letting nature be, but when we're pumping lots of compounds into the um, atmosphere that's then being sucked into the ocean, I guess you can kind of say that we're responsible for life in the ocean at this point too. Hey, Well, part of the problem is this, you know, we get permits in six weeks uh, in the Philippines to actually grow a hectare of seaweed. Not a big deal. There's a quarter million uh, seaweed cultivators doing it. Um, but uh, I talked to my colleagues back in California and literally um, it's been a dozen years and they haven't gotten all the permits because there are 17 state and federal agencies that weigh in on whether or not you can grow a fraction of an acre of kelp near the shore, um, you know, off off uh, the West Coast. So with 17 state and federal agencies, the bureaucracy is enormous, and that's a real impediment to making progress on offshore seaweed mariculture in the United States, uh, EEZ waters. That said, we're looking forward to developing some out-of-the-box approaches and solutions, including marine permaculture vessels that uh, are registered with Coast Guard and are effectively are able to sail the seven seas and um, you know, they have a right to safe navigation. So that may be a way to streamline this, but that's something that's still in progress. And it's something we need to try to address because heaven knows California has lost 90, 90% plus of its Neurocystis canopy kelp forest off Northern California. With 90% of that forest gone, it's not coming back because it's been replaced by urchin barrens and those urchin barrens aren't going to go away until we've addressed 99% of the problem and address the climate disruption. The water's too warm, the nutrient levels are too low, and these seaweeds are not coming back until we can address that. And we're doing that with marine permaculture, fundamentally um, one hectare at a time. And uh, the approach is to use marine solar, wind, and wave energy to restore natural upwelling, get those nutrients, the macronutrients, back to the kelp forest again and enable it to grow three or most of the seasons of the year. Okay. So you just mentioned California and I want to dive into this a little bit deeper because I think, again, this is something that really disturbs me. I'm a particular, particularly concerned about loss of biodiversity, not just on land, but in the oceans as well. As again, we were discussing before the podcast, when I lived in Australia, I was excited to go see the Great Barrier Reef and we rode out on a boat 30 minutes to go snorkel down. And there were some cool spots where like there was life still, but when we did the actual scuba diving, you could see that everything was bleached white. So I wanted you to touch a bit before we get into the optimistic stuff about how much loss of life have we seen in the ocean in, in just the last few decades and why does this matter for, for for people? I'll tell you why it matters. First of all, there are billions of people around the world today who depend on the ocean for their primary sustenance. Um, sadly, with the overfishing that's taken place um, because of the depleted stocks, more than half of the fish biomass has been harvested from the oceans in the last 30 years. 
and that's pretty devastating. And even more extreme is that 90% of the big fish are gone, which is devastating. I mean, that just changes in such profound ways, the ocean. Now, in addition to that, we've documented the loss of a thousand square kilometers of kelp forest off Western Australia, uh, nearly a thousand off of Tasmania and Eastern Australia, and on the order of a thousand square kilometers of lost kelp forest off the West coast of the United States. Um, I didn't know until I went and did the research that um, there were maps done in the 1800s, done by the US Geodetic Survey of a continuous river of kelp, half a kilometer wide that went from like central California to past the Mexican border. And I was amazed to see that on the map. In fact, it was on the 1853 chart, the 1868 chart, the 1888 chart, and right through until about 1939, where there was a lot of farming, a lot of siltation, a lot of runoff, and that lower visibility affected the ability of the juvenile kelps to grow up from the seafloor 25 meters below the surface up to the surface. And that was where we lost the continuous kelp forest. Now, it was on the map because it was so dense that it was a navigational hazard. You couldn't get your boat into Santa Barbara Harbor without crossing the continuous river of kelp. So it was a navigational hazard that had to be addressed and had to be put on the map. No one alive today has a living memory of the kelp forests that once were off the west coast of the United States in the 1800s. That's how profound it is. I'm yeah, I'm not surprised. Uh, I mean, runoff. It's yes. what what exactly is kelp, and how is it different from something like like seaweed, or is it a type of seaweed? Kelp is a form of brown seaweed, and okay. all kelps are brown seaweed, but all brown seaweeds are not kelps. So there's a larger classification of brown seaweed, and then there's green seaweed and there's red seaweed. And it turns out there are several thousand of each. In fact, there are 14,000 species of red, green, and brown seaweeds who have, that have been identified today and more that haven't been identified. Do you know if asparagopsis is a type of seaweed? Yes, it's a type of red seaweed. And yeah. it's particularly good at, um, it's got a high content of bromoforms. And, you know, the bromoforms by themselves are toxic, but the whole seaweed is a whole food that is well tolerated by cows and uh, other exactly. ruminant livestock. Exactly. And it can cut, you know, a 1% feed supplement can cut most of the methane emissions of those ruminant livestock, which is now going to be a, a requirement in California, leading the way uh, on the United States requirements going forward. I, I heard that like 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions comes from livestock. I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. Yeah that, yeah, that that was a big deal. We did a whole episode on that. That was really, really cool to learn. There's so many um, optimistic things going on, um, given the, the circumstances of the last few years. I've seen such such a loss of life. Do you want to, before we kind of get into talking about the Climate Foundation and the work you're doing with marine permaculture, can you kind of explain the connection between regeneration and climate change and how growing, growing these plants and bringing back life will actually help with the climate situation? Definitely. You know, if we got to zero carbon, but it was on a dead planet, would we really have succeeded? Because we'd have lost our food source. <laughs> um, that There's a big challenge. And the challenge is that our ecosystems in the ocean are collapsing very quickly because they're on the front lines of climate disruption. And ecosystems in soils and on soils are collapsing as well. The Green Revolution was all about, you know, uh, better life through chemistry, <laughs> you know, adding all sorts of chemicals to our soils to try to get it to work. It's ironic they call it the green revolution because what we really have now is an emerging biological revolution, a 
of our understanding of healthy soil microbial communities that actually fix more carbon, produce the recalcitrant carbon in the soils that will stay for decades, if not centuries, and can really get our understanding of the soil back. I mean, I was amazed to learn that diazotrophic or nitrogen fixing microbes in the soil could actually, you know, fix the nitrogen straight from the air, feed the plants directly, which is amazing. And then various forms of fungi can actually unlock mineral phosphate from the soil minerals and provide, make it bioavailable so that those uh, plants can use them. So it means you actually do have a source of nitrate and phosphate that doesn't depend on chemical fertilizer. And the other thing that really blew me away is that um, glyphosate is actually an antibiotic. So if you put glyphosate on the soils, you're going to wipe out much of that soil microbial community. So we've got to move from our, you know, kind of better life through chemistry of the last millennium to a biological understanding of the soil that's going to transform what we do. And I'll, I'll just say we do Paul Revere once if by land, twice if by sea. And there are a lot of folks working now on actually regenerating life in the soils. And we decided, okay, we need to turn to the ocean. We need to look at how can we regenerate uh, the kelp forests enough to provide enough habitat for forage fish so we could you know, reboot life in the oceans, literally get the sardine populations back. The Monterey sardines of the last century, Cannery Row, that you know population has been devastated. And getting back to pre-industrial levels of kelp forest, of sardine populations, anchovies, herring, and salmon. That's the name of the game in terms of regenerating life in the ocean, which ultimately determines the biological pump. And I'll tell you, the biological pump in the ocean is responsible for more than half the oxygen we breathe right now. So every other breath, you can thank a, a algae in the ocean for that oxygen. And uh, that's why it is so important, because if that biological pump fails, we fail. And literally, this has happened before. And those who do not uh, you know, understand history are condemned to repeat it. But this history is the Permian mass extinction Heard 251 million years ago. Yeah. It basically resulted from, hey, a global warming spike that happened naturally. Uh, but it happened, and that resulted in a warmer ocean, a stratified ocean, that stratified ocean didn't get the upwelling that it needed. And as a result, the, the algae and plankton populations dropped. The oxygen production dropped. The uh, oxygen levels dropped. And 96% of all marine species went extinct during the Permian mass extinction. And that's, you know, we're already 2% of the way to that Permian mass extinction now. If you look at the oxygen levels throughout the ocean, especially in the oxygen minimum zone, are, the needles have already moved 2% down. Mm -hmm. And so that means they're like 2% of actually having capitulated the Permian mass extinction. So we don't know where that tipping point is, right? But the needles are moving. And unless we actively work to restore the biological pump and enable that natural upwelling to occur and enable uh, marine permaculture, enable these this uh, sea forestation to occur for macroalgae and microalgae, um, that's what we need to do in order to keep things going. Otherwise, we're sliding straight towards a repeat of the Permian mass extinction. And that's the challenge and the opportunity. And with marine permaculture, we're looking to actually restore natural upwelling and get nature back on track one hectare at a time, you know, locally, in regions, and eventually across the ocean, potentially. Because between you and me right now, there's 100 million square kilometers of mostly empty 
ocean that's available for that's accessible to technologies like marine permaculture to enable the regeneration of kelp forest ecosystem services offshore. Yeah, you're talking about the Pacific Ocean, which is it's basically like a desert at this point, no? Well, there are a lot of marine ecologists who object to the term uh, ocean desert, but I think Sir David Attenborough said it really well when he said, these subtropical regions in the ocean are mostly empty ocean. And between you and me right now, there's 100 million square kilometers of mostly empty subtropical and tropical ocean that's accessible to technologies like marine permaculture. And you think that you could be like a farmer in that area and take an area that hasn't been, hasn't typically had a lot of life and use what you know to make it like a thriving ecosystem through human intervention? We call it offshore seaweed mariculture, of which marine permaculture is a variety. And the reason we make a distinction from farming is the following. Farming has a lot of inputs. There's a lot of fertilizer. You got feed and salmon farming and things like that. Marine permaculture has no inputs. We're actually just using the nutrients that are in the ocean and regenerating that natural upwelling that can enable the ocean forest to thrive. And so that's why we distinguish um, this mariculture, this offshore seaweed mariculture, because it really is a new thing that doesn't have the inputs and the eutrophication and the runoff that would normally be associated with a farming operation. So yes, cultivating in the ocean makes a lot of sense. And with uh, mariculture, there are huge opportunities. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about fam families from Australia to the Philippines, um, disadvantaged seaweed communities, a quarter million seaweed farmers and cultivators in, um, in, in the Philippines and two and a half million seaweed cultivators in Indonesia. So it's this huge opportunity to actually reduce nutrients that are uh, associated with runoff uh, using the seaweed cultivation, um, restore natural upwelling and enable uh, help helping nature get back on track again. I mean, without upwelling, you know, we're not <laughs> life in the ocean doesn't look very promising. Can you can you tell people what upwelling is and explain what this this ocean pump system is and why how it operates and why it's changing and how we can kind of fix it or make it better? Definitely. Pre-industrially, um, you'd have a you have offshore winds that occur from Santa Ana's in California to normally normal westerlies, let's say on the east coast. Those offshore winds move war the warm water offshore and bring up colder, deeper water uh, from underneath. That's how it normally works, and that works fine in a pre-industrial world. Mm -hmm. But in a climate disrupted world, that ocean is one point one to one point six to two to four degrees higher than normal. I mean, I've seen it like off my, my uh, hometown of Woodsole, Massachusetts, you know, the ocean average is 1.1 Celsius. That's just under two degrees. But um, in my, I've, I've looked at the temperature records over the past 120 years and off Cape Cod, the temperature's actually gone up two degrees Celsius in that time, which is at least three degrees Fahrenheit um, more than, you know, where it was, pre-industrially. So that's had a huge effect. And off the eastern shores of Tasmania, it's three to four degrees Celsius, which would be five to six degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it was back then. And 95% of those uh, kelp forests, the canopy forming macrocystis kelp forest is gone. And it's actually just missing. I've gone diving on it years in a row, just like off Northern California, where we've lost 90% or more 
of the Neurocystis kelp forest off Northern California today. So when you say that the the kelp, when you're planting the seaweed or the kelp forest and it doesn't need any inputs, does that mean you just like attach it to the sea floor and it just feeds off the sun and just grows? We actually build a um, submersible platform that is a, provides a, an attachment point, it's a substrate for the seaweeds to attach to and grow from there. Not only is it a substrate, but it is a um, an irrigation system. So think of it like hydroponics for the ocean. And what we do is we bring up enough cool water to actually irrigate the kelp forest and enable it to get back on track again with enough nutrients in order to thrive. And that combination results in a regenerated kelp forest offshore, which is transformational. And all it is is restoring natural upwelling that occurred pre-industrially. But in a warmer world, you know, you don't, it's an energy barrier to that upwelling. And so without using some kind of energy source, and we use wave energy, wind energy, and marine solar to restore that natural upwelling and get that hectare of irrigation going again. Well, how do you actually do that? Do you like get a pump underneath the, the water and push cold water up to feed the, the seaweed? Yeah, it started more than a dozen years ago. And uh, we had partners at AppMotion and we worked with the University of Hawaii. And we actually, um, we, we actually used a wave-driven pump in the Pacific Ocean to bring huge amounts, uh, cubic meters of water back up to the surface. And we were actually able to demonstrate uh, the, um, the regeneration of algae growth. And uh, I realized then two things. One is that the forage fish had no place to hide. And we had to try to build a habitat for those forage fish because for sardines and anchovies, if you don't have a habitat, that's probably more important than food itself because you're going to get eaten that night. I mean, you just like, if you don't have habitat, you're, you know, it's like not having a house, you know, <laughs> it's, it's really, really pretty serious. So uh, the opportunity then was to realize, okay, how could we build that habitat and how could we better curate the restoration of natural upwelling and the irrigation of the, of the algae? And that is where the macroalgae, the seaweed, comes in because it creates a kelp forest, you know, and, and if you remember back to the movie, Dory, you know, Dory looked at the blue ocean and she looked at kelp and she had to decide, okay, where am I going to go to find my parents? And she went for the kelp forest and she found her parents there. And that's like marketing 101 Whoa, for spoilers, kelp forest man. as regenerative. <laughs> Come on. Sorry man. for the spoilers. <laughs> no, but just, you know, in terms of inspiration, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, anyone could have done a better job than, than Disney to inspire and also to get people to fall in love with the ocean and with Definitely. the beautiful creatures that are in the ocean. So all of your work is being done right now under the umbrella of the, the Climate Foundation. Is that right? Yes, we are. Um, develop, we've developed marine permaculture from its inception at technology readiness level one through a series of trials across um the Pacific Ocean to really demonstrate that yes, we could grow algae. It could it would respond to natural upwelling, uh, restoring the nat natural upwelling, and um, even the commercial forms of algae because there is a multi-billion-dollar industry growing seaweed, uh, particularly in Asia where more than ninety-five percent of it's grown For and food? most of it is eaten. Oh. Yeah, food, feed, and fertilizer. I mean, every ne the next time you have uh, a sushi, you know, you've got nori wrapped around the outside. We've got incredible things like uh, not only dried seaweed, but um, seaweed sauerkraut is really popular here in Australia. Uh, right off Byron, there's some places that, that make it. 
And we've got a whole variety of food products. I've even had seaweed lasagna, where you replace the high glycemic index lasagna noodles with uh, kelp, you know, actual kelp noodles. <laughs> so yeah. those, those kelp is just incredibly, you're replacing a high glycemic index gluten food with a whole food that's natural with a low glycemic index and incredible properties. And I'll Nutrient tell you, dense. kelp lasagna. Oh yeah. It's just, it's beyond superfood status. I, I have a little uh, seaweed every day and look what's happened to me over the last few years. Yeah. Doing well, huh? Well, you get into it. Yeah. I, I like that. Any particularly exciting developments at the Climate Foundation recently? Well, I'll, the big one is just last month, we won the X Prize for carbon removal. Let's and go. so we are like locked and loaded to launch the whole marine permaculture industry. Thanks to all the folks at X Prize and the Elon Musk Foundation. So, so what does that mean that that X Prize is for 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 drawdown? Is it every month? Is it every year? Is there only one person? Like, what part of the prizes you win? This is part of the hundred million dollar X Prize for carbon removal. And uh, there was last year there were some student competitions, and there were a number of uh, quarter million dollar awards. I think um, twenty of those were handed out, which is great. And a lot of student groups, including some of our colleagues here in Australia, won those. And now this year, uh, there were out of 1,100 registrants for the X Prize for Carbon Removal, um, the top 15 were actually selected to receive what they call milestone awards. And those 15 teams share $15 million to actually accelerate what they're doing and go after the grand prize, which is going to be um, three years uh, from last Earth Day. So just under, call it a thousand days mm-hmm. to actually scale by orders of magnitude. And what we have to do is fix a thousand tons of carbon dioxide between February, 2024 and February, 2025 and document that and submit it for the X prize, the grand prize, which will be $50 million to the first place winner. And I think um, 20 and 10 to runners up. Uh, and that'll be award announced on earth day, 2025. So it's whoever can do a thousand or whoever can do the most. No, it's really demonstrating uh, a thousand, more than a thousand tons of carbon removal, and then furthermore be able to show technology that will scale. So it's really about developing new technologies because the future is here today, but it's not broadly distributed yet. And so technologies like marine permaculture, we need to show we've got economic sustainability at a hectare scale. We can bring the performance up and the cost down to the point where we can launch the marine permaculture industry and enable thousands of hectares to be grown around the world and really enable the uh, the entire industry to thrive and grow exponentially. We have a plan you know, that will require tripling the area under deep water irrigation every year for the next dozen years, which ultimately could provide um, over a gigaton of carbon dioxide fixation per year. And so yeah. that's a huge goal. But to get there, it requires that exponential ramping. You know, um, there's something even better than Moore's law, and that is Wright's law did a better job of predicting semiconductor performance improvements and cost reductions than Moore's law did. And it actually applies to solar panels as well. Uh, and so this ability to that with every doubling of cumulative production, your costs come down 20, 30, or even 40% is a huge result, which means the more we do, the more we can improve the cost and actually increase the performance. And that's what we're looking at for building hectares of marine permaculture as we go forward. So I think we've touched on uh, several different reasons throughout the, sh- the uh, show so far, but can you give the, the main arguments for why we want to regrow seaweed forest, what kind of benefits it's providing to ecosystems and people directly? Definitely. It's well documented that uh, reefs like the Great Barrier Reef are actually 
home for more than a quarter of all the marine species on the planet during some part of their life cycle. And I will say the same thing for the Great Southern Reef of Australia and probably the coast of California as well. Those kelp forests are habitat for a huge fraction of all the life that's in the ocean. And there's more life in the ocean than even on land. And being able to ensure that habitat is preserved through climate disruption, those ecosystem services are available either onshore in a natural kelp forest or offshore on a marine permaculture cultivation is absolutely essential to ensuring those ecosystem services are there for those species to survive and enable life to actually regenerate itself so that we'll have food security for the billions of people who depend on that ocean, this, a regenerated ecosystem that's healthy and that can provide um, oxygen production, carbon fixation, and and food for uh, not only enough food for humanity, but enough food for nature and those 8 million species who, who can't vote, who don't get to vote uh, and are on the spaceship earth with us. And then finally, our interest is to be able to measure the carbon export of those regenerative interventions. And that is the seaweed that falls off these platforms during growth and sinks a thousand meters a day to the abyssal ocean where it'll remain for centuries. It's amazing how nature-based solutions have so many wide co-benefits, yet we've disregarded nature so much over the last century in the pursuit of building our own plastic world of, of technology. But I mean, it's I still I still maintain hope that once that we're now we have the good information, people are investing into this stuff and we can build back a world that's even better than the one from from 1880 when we started the Industrial Revolution. I, I just think it's, it's never too late. You know, that's a great point, Ethan. And I what I'd like to say is that, you know, we have to change our mindset and we've lived in a reductionist mindset, money, 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 you know, for decades. Right. If not centuries. Now it's carbon, carbon, carbon. But if we're applying a reductionist mindset to solving the problem, huge side effects, right? We need to move towards what Buckminster Fuller called an integrated mindset. And that is the whole principle of permaculture. If we're going to make an intervention, we want to have three or four benefits because it's, it's, it costs a lot to make those interventions. And so we want to have uh, ecosystem benefits. We want to have food security benefits. We want to have sustainability benefits, economic and otherwise. And we want to have um, climate benefits. And so by de designing integrative solutions like marine permaculture, we can actually uh, identify uh, integrative solutions that can get us back on track to uh, restoring a, a healthy climate while having uh, good food security for uh, human and, and natural populations. Yeah. And here's one of the most exciting things about this is that I, I mentioned this on a, a couple episodes ago, how I did a whole, I did a whole podcast on mangroves and how all we did, they re-wetted an area and within like a week, the little baby mangrove trees were beginning to grow already. So it's not like it takes this monst monstrous effort to bring life back. Like all you have to do is plant a seed and then it creates a positive feedback loop. As long as you don't have conditions where you're consistently having toxic nitrogen running off into the ocean and killing all the seaweed. If you restore the the ecosystem, it will grow back very, very quickly. Like I always like to bring up the example of like Chernobyl, which is like an abandoned city that's now bustling with life and there's animals running all over the streets and stuff now, which is really cool. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about how fast um, these seaweed plants grow when you're doing this this marine uh, permaculture process. They grow, the, um, the seaweed, the giant kelp will grow half a meter a day. That's how it's like, you can practically see it growing. And I'll tell you, 
we've got firm evidence that, that in the seas as well as the soils, you give nature half a chance and she will rebound with exponential bounty. And we've right. got it right now. Our platform, we've got the, uh, the deepest uh, water moored platform uh, of seaweed on the planet right now at 350 meters deep. And it's growing seaweed beautifully. And I'll tell you, we've got thousands of sardines that hang out there. Hundreds of tuna fish come in. Dozens of dolphins have spent more than a month around our platform. We even had a whale shark swim 200 kilometers and spend three days with us eating the algae around it. So that nature has voted with her fins. And she said, you've got the good stuff. And it's right there, regenerating life on the marine permaculture platform. Yeah. Oh man, I get so excited thinking about if that was like everywhere. You know, when when I was out in Australia, every so often you could like look into the distance and see like some whales jumping out of the water. Like imagine if we were always, I mean, it's dangerous if there's animals that are going to attack us, but I mean, a, a life that's, a world that's bustling with life just seems really appealing to me. I'm, I've always been fascinated with with animal life though. What are your, what are your thoughts on how to preserve the remaining like coral reefs. And then, cause I, as I understand it, they're, they're mostly dying because of the change in acidity levels and the increased temperature of the ocean. No, that's, that's not right. Yeah. It's School the temperature. You're, you know, you're spot on, on the temperature. It's called thermally induced photobleaching, which means the water's too warm. And the, so the uh, amount of oxygen produced by the uh, little zooxanthellae inside the coral polyps becomes too much. And they, they have to shut down that algae production. And so they either eject the, um, you know, the, the zooxanthellae or they um, turn them off effectively. And so the problem is those little zooxanthellae represent 90% of the food source for those coral animals. And so unless they get back on track, they're kind of on life support, right? They're not going to lay down more calcium carbonate. They're kind of eking out a little survival. And then after, you know, months later, they'll either die or, or they might succumb to, to disease Sometimes they'll be able to recover, but they're not growing. And that's the challenge. We need to move from these uh, insults and devastations to those coral reefs back to regeneration. And we've got a proposal in right now to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority to actually restore natural upwelling during the summer, get the, um, the, the, the seaweed growing with that, that irrigation. And downstream, the corals are going to be cooler because of that irrigation. And we found that as little as half a degree cooler was enough to enable nature to rebound exponentially. We thought it would take three months for those corals to reverse bleaching. It happened overnight, literally 24 hours. And those corals were back to full color. And that work was back, we started in 2009 doing this in American Samoa. And we're still working to get the approvals to, you know, it's like it's like America revisited. Australia's got, you know, a dozen years in huge bureaucracy, you know, to actually get this solution delivered and we're just trying we're proposing 10 by 10 meters it's a little postage stamp but eventually we'll get there and you know as soon as um people really you know ask for the solution we're ready to go we're ready to go and and test this and actually show that we can grow seaweeds and that each summer we can protect potentially hectares or kilometers or dozens of kilometers or most of the great barrier reef from thermally induced photo bleaching in the future it's one of many of several solutions and we need to really test those out and build the popular support to make it happen. Well, it's obvious that you're very excited about your work. And it's not hard to tell why when you're talking about that so, such uplifting news. I mean, I'm uh, yeah, I was really upset when I saw that things were 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 dead. And, and the way I understood it is it was something that was out of control. And then the temperatures are going up and we can't fix it. But like if all it takes is a little bit of, of a nudge, I mean, I say a little bit of a nudge, but you're what you're describing is basically installing ocean pumps and then 
putting platform and then installing platforms so that that seaweeds grow. Um, I mean, in the scheme of things, it really is not not that much. Just like a little push and then a little box and then life comes, comes crawling back, you know? That is it entirely. And, you know, it's really all about uh, filling those uh, nutrient value chain gaps uh, in, in nature, you know, where they're caused by climate disruption. But effectively, you can get that, restore that natural upwelling. We can enable these um, these seaweeds to regrow, these seaweed forests to regrow naturally and provide that entire cycle. And then will it eventually recreate the natural upwelling cycle so the pumps won't be necessary anymore? It will when we get our temperatures back to normal and our carbon carbon budget back into balance. That said, there's 1,500 gigatons that humanity has put into the atmosphere. And we're going to have to keep working on this until, I mean, nature, the ocean right now has 38,000 gigatons, including a third of all the carbon that humanity has put into the atmosphere. It's in the ocean today. And that mm-hmm. is the ultimate destination for uh, most of the carbon that we've emitted. Right. So it's this is really a process of enabling the biological pump to uh, restore and accelerate um, the the sinking of carbon to the middle and deep ocean where it'll remain for centuries. And that's long enough because you know we'll be uh, onto a different technology entirely um, over the, the next century. I hope um, that will decarbonize our civilization by more than eighty percent draw down the rest and enable us to get back to a healthy climate. We're going to draw it down, man. It's going to happen. I'm telling you, we're going to, we're going to make it happen. Um, at, at this point, who is funding these projects and what are your thoughts on how to effectively monetize and scale these technologies so they don't rely on philanthropy? Well, we're act- it's effectively bootstrapping and we've got wonderful organizations like uh, private foundations, like the, the Woka Foundation has supported our work for several years now. Uh, the X Prize was, you know, Woke has pledged as soon as you hit your tenth of a hectare milestone, which we plan to do this year, um, well, they're going to actually provide us with the first million for th- out of three million that's needed to build that first hectare in our R&D capacity and f- effectively bring that to commercialization. Now, the X Prize is the second million, and we've got to crowdfund the third million to actually enable that first hectare to happen, sh- build the business model, show that it works, and then scale it exponentially with private equity and uh, folks that you know want to get involved around the world. And it's really about building that volunteer base, building the, um, the, the, the financial case to really enable this to be a very cost-effective as well as nature-based solution for food security, for ecosystems, and ultimately for um, being able to measure that carbon export of these regenerative interventions. So what actually is the business model? Are you talking about regrowing an ecosystem and then people like fishing it? Or are we talking about carbon credits? About what was the actual like economic model that you're proposing? We've got seven Fs and that is food, feed, and fertilizer, fish, fiber, biofuels, and pharmaceuticals, which is a funny F. But (laughs) effectively, you know, seven Fs, there's seven value chains, but it starts with food, feed, and fertilizer. And that is um, seaweed is a superfood. And we're looking forward to, you know, effectively getting that into mainstream Western diets, because I'll tell you right now, we, we've seen studies where Thailand and Japan have seven times less breast cancer than Western countries. Seven times. That's amazing for a leading cause of illness and death. I mean, that's huge. That's just one example. Metabolic syndrome. Uh, it's amazing. But seaweed has a profound effect on reducing metabolic syndrome, which leads to type two diabetes and obesity. So imagine a little seaweed every day, catalyzing smooth digestion, improved immune system, 
and um, addressing metabolic syndrome. So literally getting seaweed into our diet regularly is a huge factor. And then secondly, um, we've talked about the methane emission reduction in ruminant livestock. And the third is that we've developed some uh, liquid biostimulants that can result in double-digit yield increases on almost most flowering crops. And that includes vegetables, fruit trees, flowers, and even row crops. And, you know, it's a little known fact that um, the Napa Valley wineries and vineyards wouldn't think of doing business without biostimulants that increase the number of grapes, the yield of grapes per acre, and all the rest. Uh, we need to apply that technology across our industry because there's only like 3% of America's cultivation actually uses seaweed foliar biostimulants today. And so there's a huge opportunity to bring that back. We've done trials with the rice farmers in the Philippines. They're getting 15 to 30% yield improvements. And what's more is they can maintain their yields using 20% less fertilizer. And these days, I don't know if you've checked, but nitrate fertilizer has gone through the roof, you know, with all checked. of these problems with natural gas. Well, in Europe, you know, the natural gas was the supply of, uh, uh, you know, for making nitrate fertilizer. And uh, groups like Yara have actually shut down their production of nitrate fertilizer, which is going to cause uh, food crises all over the world. It's not their fault. The price of natural gas has gone up so high that the production, you know, has been problematic. And so um, the real challenge is, okay, in this really expensive world for growing food, anything that'll reduce nitrate fertilizer requirements by 20% means less cost to the farmer. It means less runoff, 20% less runoff, and 20% less nitrous oxide going back into the atmosphere. And nitrous oxide has 300 times the greenhouse gas potential of carbon dioxide. Right. So I, I love that the, those seven Fs, I think that all makes sense, but those are all seven different industries. So I'm like, I'm wondering who's going to actually, you know, cough up the money and grow the actual product. Is there going to be one producer who's then selling to all different consumers that are then middlemen who are selling it to the end consumer? Or what, what do you, what is your idea about this? Like who's actually going to spend the money up front and, and grow, grow the seaweed and re-regulate the ecosystem so that, and all those different industries can actually use it. We're working with uh, partners in forming a marine permaculture alliance that's going to enable a whole industry to be launched to provide direct sales of food, feed, and fertilizer to all of the places in Asia and Australasia and across to the Americas and Europe. There's a huge opportunity here, and we see this as a chance to launch an entire industry and to enable that industry totally. to cooperate and collaborate effectively and effectively accelerate this rollout. because. We're all on the spaceship Earth together, and our challenge and our opportunity is to scale fast enough to actually address the food security challenges we're going to have in the difficult years to come and ensure that ecosystems stay on track and actually scale the carbon fixation enough to get nature back on track on fixing gigatons of carbon each year in the soils and the seas to ensure that we can um, decarbonize and draw down enough to actually get us back to a healthy climate on just broadly how we can effectively monetize regeneration so that we have a global economy that's primed to be working for life rather than against it. So we, that we come in, what do you can call it? Like the fifth industrial revolution or something. That's for lots of different ideas about this. I call it the regenerative economy. Right. It starts in your own backyard. And actually I work with a wonderful company called ThriveLot and um, help them, you know, advise them on how to actually enable us to scale. But ThriveLot is, is ThriveLot.com is rolling across America and they're actually turning 
30 or 40 million acres of grass can potentially be turned into a food forest that can feed humanity, can feed nature. I mean, the animals love it. And actually, you know, imagine just building a food forest in your backyard. That's an incredible way to start in the soils. And then we think about uh, basically doing the same in the seas with marine permaculture and regenerating uh, acres of kelp forest, you know, offshore and working with people around around the world in coastal communities to enable that to happen. So once if by land, twice if by sea, Paul Rivera was right. Yeah, he was. Yeah, my first client, that, that was his plan when he bought the house is to build this this food for us. And he's been getting after it. But it's a lot of work, you know, it's a lot of work to be a, you know, a steward of the planet. But we're at the point as Americans, I think we have a lot of responsibility with all the privileges that we've been given the opportunities that we have to use that responsibility. You know, like Uncle Bed said, great power, great responsibility, just kind of get after it, make the world better. And now is the time to do it. And, and there's more and more tools coming at your disposal every single day to not only make it easier but make your impact even larger so brian it's been really really cool to talk i'm actually honored to have been able to speak with you i really think the work you're doing is absolutely fantastic and your energy clearly comes through um on the microphone or whatever so it's it's been great do you have any final pieces of advice for young folks who are passionate about building a better world i'll i'll provide a bit of advice that was handed to me and i can pay it forward and that is uh, i had as an advisor uh richard Feynman at caltech and i was getting my phd there and he um, provided some great advice, which was to vote with your feet, to work on projects that you love, that speak to you. And really voting with your feet is about working on projects that are going to regenerate a healthy civilization for all of us to live on, a sustainable civilization. And that's why we're enthusiastic to have volunteers and other kinds of contributions at climatefoundation.org and effectively build the future that we're going to need that's going to regenerate healthy uh, climate on the planet and uh, a healthy ecosystems for all. Yeah. One of the things that I, I love about regeneration and that I don't like as much about net zero is that net zero is a finite goal. And once you reach it, you're done. But regeneration, there's no limit. You can continue to go on and create more and more life endlessly as far as I'm concerned. I mean, we could, we're talking about going and colonizing Mars, like the, the mission never ends. And I think that's a really meaningful way to spend your time to always st keep striving towards more and more and more. But that's just me. Yeah. It turns out net zero is not enough. I mean, it's not really right. broadly admitted yet. But the reality is we get to net zero and those glaciers are still melting. Totally. The, the methane is still bubbling out of the out of the ocean and the plankton are still dying. And, you know, in what universe is that going to go well for us? There's no way. I mean, <laughs> built in decades, if not centuries of warming. So we got to go way past net zero. I mean, we we have to do 80 percent decarbonization now, cut most of the methane on the planet, because this year's methane will contribute to the next 20 years of more warming more than this year's carbon dioxide. By and 10, then 10x, more, I think, yeah. Well, it's actually 71 times the greenhouse gas potential. Even, even but more. It's huge. And so the fact that the reality is we've got to get a handle on the methane. We've got to um, you know, decarbonize and then draw down the rest. And that starts with nature-based solutions. And that is regenerating healthy soil microbial communities on land and regenerating natural uh, kelp forests with sea forestation in the sea. I'm fully on board. Dr. Brian, you're the man. Oh, thank you, Ethan. Great to, great to meet with you. You as well. All right, everybody. And we'll see you again. Take care.
So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrealty.org today.